Part four, chapter six and seven of the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle by Hugh Lofty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six, the Jibrizri. We found the woods at the feet of the hills thick and tangly, and somewhat hard to get through. On Polynesia's advice, we kept away from all paths and trails, feeling it best to avoid meeting any Indians for the present. But she and Chichi were good guides and splendid jungle hunters and the two of them set to work at once looking for food for us in a very short space of time they had found quite a number of different fruits and nuts which made excellent eating though none of us knew the names of any of them we discovered a nice clean stream of good water which came down from the mountains so we were supplied with something to drink as well we followed the stream up towards the heights and presently we came to parts where the woods were thinner and the ground rocky and steep here we could get glimpses of wonderful views all over the island with the blue sea beyond while we were admiring one of these the doctor suddenly said shh a jibizri don't you hear it we listened and heard somewhere in the air about us an extraordinarily musical hum like a bee but not just one note this hum rose and fell up and down almost like someone singing no other insect but the jibizri beetle hums like that said the doctor i wonder where he is quite near by the sound flying among the trees probably oh if i only had my butterfly net why didn't i think to strap that around my waist too confound the storm i may miss the chance of a lifetime now of getting the rarest beetle in the world oh look there he goes a huge beetle, easily three inches long, I should say, suddenly flew by our noses. The doctor got frightfully excited. He took off his hat to use as a net, swooped at the beetle and caught it. He nearly fell down a precipice on the rocks below in his wild hurry, but that didn't bother him in the least. He knelt down, chortling upon the ground with the jibrizri, safe under his hat. From his pocket he brought out a glass-topped box, and into this he very skillfully made the beetle walk from under the rim of the hat. Then he rose up, happy as a child, to examine his new treasure through the glass lid. It certainly was a most beautiful insect. It was pale blue underneath, but its back was glossy black with huge red spots on it. There isn't an entomologist in the whole world who wouldn't give all he has to be in my shoes today, said the doctor. Hello. This Jabizri's got something on his leg. Doesn't look like mud. I wonder what it is. He took the beetle carefully out of the box and held it by its back in his fingers, where it waved its six legs slowly in the air. We all crowded about him, peering at it. Rolled around the middle section of its right foreleg was something that looked like a thin dried leaf. It was bound on very neatly with strong spider web. It was marvelous to see how John Doodle, with his fat, heavy fingers, undid that cobweb cord and unrolled the leaf, whole without tearing it or hurting the precious beetle. The jibrizri he put back into the box. He then spread the leaf out flat and examined it. You can imagine our surprise when we found that the inside of the leaf was covered with signs and pictures, drawn so tiny that you almost needed a magnifying glass to tell what they were. Some of the signs we couldn't make out at all, but nearly all of the pictures were quite plain, figures of men and mountains mostly. The whole was done in a curious sort of brown ink. For several moments there was 
a dead silence while we all stared at the leaf, fascinated and mystified. I think this is written in blood, said the doctor at last. It turns that colour when it's dry. Somebody pricked his finger to make these pictures. It's an old dodge when you're short of ink, but highly unsanitary. What an extraordinary thing to find tied to a beetle's leg. I wish I could talk beetle language and find out where the jibizri got it from. But what is it? I asked. Rows of little pictures and signs? What do you make of it, Doctor? It's a letter, he said. A picture letter. All these little things put together mean a message. But why give a message to a beetle to carry, and to a jibizri, the rarest beetle in the world? What an extraordinary thing! Then he fell to muttering over the pictures. I wonder what it means, men walking up a mountain, men walking into a hole in a mountain, a mountain falling down. It's a good drawing, that, men pointing to their open mouths, bars, prison bars, perhaps, men praying, men lying down. They look as though they might be sick, and last of all, just a mountain, a peculiar-shaped mountain. All of a sudden, the doctor looked up sharply at me. A wonderful smile of delighted understanding spread over his face. Long arrow! He cried. Don't you see, Stubbins? Why, of course! Only a naturalist would think of doing a thing like this, giving his letter to a beetle, not to a common beetle, but to the rarest of all, one that other naturalists would try to catch. Well, well, Long Arrow, a picture letter from Long Arrow, for pictures are the only writing that he knows. Yes, but who is the letter to? I asked. It's to me, very likely. Miranda had told him, I know, years ago, that some day I meant to come here. But if not for me, then it's for anyone who caught the beetle and read it. It's a letter to the world. Well, but what does it say? It doesn't seem to me that it's much good to you now you've got it. Yes, it is, he said. Because, look, I can read it now. First picture, men walking up a mountain. That's Long Arrow and his party. Men going into a hole in a mountain. They enter a cave, looking for medicine plants or mosses. A mountain falling down. Some hanging rocks must have slipped and trapped them, imprisoned them in the cave. And this was the only living creature that could carry a message for them to the outside world. A beetle who could burrow his way into the open air. Of course, it was only a slim chance that the beetle would be ever caught and the letter read. But it was a chance, and when men are in great danger, they grab at any straw of hope. All right, now look at the next picture. Men pointing to their open mouths. They are hungry. Men praying, begging anyone who finds this letter to come to their assistance. Men lying down. They are sick or starving. This letter, Stubbins, is their last cry for help. He sprang to his feet as he ended, snatched out a notebook, and put the letter between the leaves. His hands were trembling with haste and agitation. Come on, he cried. Up the mountain, all of you. There's not a moment to lose. Bumpo, bring the water and nuts with you. Heaven only knows how long they've been pining underground. Let's hope and pray we're not too late. But where are you going to look? I asked. Miranda said the island was a hundred miles long, and the mountains seemed to run all the way down the center of it. Didn't you see the last picture? He said, grabbing up his hat from the ground 
and cramming it on his head. It was an oddly shaped mountain. Looked like a hawk's head. Well, there's where he is, if he's still alive. First thing for us to do is to get up on a high peak and look around the island for a mountain shaped like a hawk's head. Just to think of it, there's a chance of my meeting Long Arrow, the son of Golden Arrow, after all. Come on, hurry! To delay may mean death to the greatest naturalist ever born. Chapter 7 Hawk's Head Mountain We all agreed afterwards that none of us had ever worked so hard in our lives before as we did that day. For my part, I know I was often on the point of dropping exhausted with fatigue, but I just kept on going like a machine, determined that whatever happened, I would not be the first to give up. When we had scrambled to the top of a high peak, almost instantly we saw the strange mountain pictured in the letter. In shape, it was the perfect image of a hawk's head, and was, as far as we could see, the second highest summit in the island. Although we were all out of breath from our climb, the doctor didn't let us rest a second as soon as he had sighted it. With one look at the sun for direction, down he dashed again, breaking through thickets, splashing over brooks, taking all the shortcuts. For a fat man, he was certainly the swiftest cross-country runner I ever saw. We floundered after him as fast as we could. When I say we, I mean Bumpo and myself, for the animals, Jip, Chichi, and Polynesia, were a long way ahead, even beyond the doctor, enjoying the hunt like a paper chase. At length we arrived at the foot of the mountain we were making for, and we found its sides very steep. Now we will separate and search for caves. This spot where we now are will be our meeting place. If anyone finds anything like a cave, or a hole where the earth and rocks have fallen in, he must shout and hello to the rest of us. If we find nothing, we will all gather here in about an hour's time. Everybody understand? Said the doctor. Then we all went off our different ways. Each of us, you may be sure, was anxious to be the one to make a discovery. And never was a mountain searched so thoroughly. But alas, nothing could we find that looked in the least like a fallen-in cave. There were plenty of places where rocks had tumbled down to the foot of the slopes, but none of these appeared as though caves or passages could possibly lie behind them. One by one, tired and disappointed, we straggled back to the meeting place. The doctor seemed gloomy and impatient, but by no means inclined to give up. Chip, he said, couldn't you smell anything like an Indian anywhere? No, said Jip. I sniffed at every crack on the mountainside, but I am afraid my nose will be of no use to you here, Doctor. The trouble is, the whole air is so saturated with the smell of spider monkeys that it drowns out every other scent. And besides, it's too cold and dry for good smelling. It is certainly that, said the Doctor. And getting colder all the time. I'm afraid the island is still drifting to the southward. Let's hope it stops before long, or we won't be able to get even nuts and fruit to eat. Everything in the island will perish. Chichi, what luck did you have? None, Doctor. I climbed to every peak and pinnacle I could see. I searched every hollow and cleft, but not one place could I find where men might be hidden. And Polynesia? Asked the Doctor. Did you see nothing that might put us on the right track? Not a thing, Doctor. But I have a plan. Oh, good, cried John Doodle, full of hope renewed. What is it? Let's hear it. 
You still have that beetle with you? She asked. The biz-biz, or whatever it is you call a wretched insect. Yes, said the doctor, producing the glass-topped box from his pocket. Here it is. All right, now listen, said she. If what you have supposed is true, that is, that Long Arrow has been trapped inside the mountain by falling rock, he probably found that beetle inside the cave, perhaps many other different beetles too, eh? He wouldn't have been likely to take the biz-biz in with him, would he? He was hunting plants, you say, not beetles. Isn't that right? Yes, said the doctor. That's probably so. Very well. It is fair to suppose, then, that the beetle's home, or his hole, is in that place, the part of the mountain where Long Arrow and his party are imprisoned, isn't it? Quite, quite. All right. Then the thing to do is to let the beetle go and watch him. And sooner or later he'll return to his home in Long Arrow's cave. And there we will follow him. Or, at all events, she added, smoothing down her wing feathers with a very superior air, we will follow him till the miserable bug starts nosing under the earth. But at least he will show us what part of the mountain Long Arrow is hidden in. But he may fly if I let him out, said the doctor. Then we shall just lose him and be no better off than we were before. Oh, let him fly, snorted Polynesia scornfully. A parrot can wing it as fast as a biz-biz, I fancy. If he takes to the air, I'll guarantee not to let the little devil out of my sight. And if he just crawls along the ground, you can follow him yourself. Splendid! cried the doctor. Polynesia, you have a great brain. I'll set him to work at once and see what happens. Again we all clustered round the doctor as he carefully lifted off the glass lid and let the big beetle climb out upon his finger. Ladybug, ladybug, fly away home, crooned Bumpo. Your house is on fire and your chill... Oh, be quiet, snapped Polynesia crossly. Stop insulting him. Don't you suppose he has wits enough to go home without your telling him? I thought by chance he might be of a philandering disposition, said Bumpo humbly. It could be that he is tired of his home and needs to be encouraged. Shall I sing him home, sweet home, think you? No, then he'd never go back. Your voice needs a rest. Don't sing to him, just watch him. Oh, and Doctor, why not tie another message to the creature's leg, telling Long Arrow that we're doing our best to reach him, and that he mustn't give up hope? I will, said the Doctor, and in a minute he had pulled a dry leaf from a bush nearby and was covering it with little pictures in pencil. At last, neatly fixed up with his new mailbag, Mr. Jabrizri crawled off the Doctor's finger to the ground and looked about him. He stretched his legs, polished his nose with his front feet, and then moved off leisurely to the westward. We had expected him to walk up the mountain. Instead, he walked around it. Do you know how long it takes a beetle to walk round a mountain? Well, I assure you, it takes an unbelievably long time. As the hours dragged by, we hoped and hoped that he would get up and fly the rest and let Polynesia carry on the work of following him but he never opened his wings once. I had not realized before how hard it was for a human being to walk slowly enough to keep up with a beetle. It was the most tedious thing I have ever gone through, and as we dawdled along behind, watching him like hawks, lest we lose him under a leaf or something, we all got so cross and ill-tempered we were ready to bite one another's heads off. And when he stopped to look at the scenery or polish his nose some more, I could hear Polynesia behind me 
letting out the most dreadful seafaring swear words you ever heard. After he had led us the whole way round the mountain, he brought us to the exact spot where we started from, and there he came to a dead stop. Well, said Bumpo to Polynesia, what do you think of the beetle's sense now? You see, he doesn't know enough to go home. Oh, be still, you hottentot, snapped Polynesia. Wouldn't you want to stretch your legs for exercise if you'd been shut up in a box all day? Probably his home is near here, and that's why he's come back. But why? I asked. Did he go the whole way round the mountain first? Then the three of us got into a violent argument. But in the middle of it all, the doctor suddenly called out, Look, look! We turned and found that he was pointing to the Jabrizi, who was now walking up the mountain at a much faster and more business-like gait. Well, said Bumpo, sitting down wearily, If he is going to walk over the mountain and back for more exercise, I'll wait for him here. Chichi and Bolognesia can follow him. Indeed, it would have taken a monkey or a bird to climb the place which the beetle was now walking up. It was a smooth, flat part of the mountainside, steep as a wall. But presently, when the jabrizri was no more than ten feet above our heads, we all cried out together. For even while we watched him, he had disappeared into the face of the rock, like a raindrop soaking into sand. He's gone, cried Polynesia. There must be a hole up there and in a twinkling she had fluttered up the rock and was clinging to the face of it with her claws. Yes! She shouted down. We've run him to earth at last! His hole is right here, behind a patch of lichen, big enough to get two fingers in. Ah! cried the doctor. This great slab of rock then must have slid down from the summit and shut off the mouth of the cave like a door. Poor fellows! What a dreadful time they must have spent in there. Oh, if we only had some picks and shovels now. Picks and shovels wouldn't do much good, said Polynesia. Look at the size of the slab, a hundred feet high and as many broad. You would need an army for a week to make any impression on it. I wonder how thick it is, said the doctor, and he picked up a big stone and banged it with all his might against the face of the rock. It made a hollow booming sound like a giant drum. We all stood still, listening, while the echo of it died slowly away. And then a cold shiver ran down my spine. For from within the mountain back came three answering knocks. Boom! 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 Wide-eyed we looked at one another, as though the earth itself had spoken. And the solemn little silence that followed was broken by the doctor. Thank heaven! he said in a hushed, reverent voice. Some of them, at least, are alive. End of part four.